0: Welcome, I'm Jordan, and this is The Analytic Christian, where we explore topics in Christian philosophy and theology. This is going to be the first episode in a series of episodes on moral arguments for the existence of God. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Eric Sampson, and he'll be offering a defense of moral realism, the view that morality is objective. Now there's two strategies you can use to show the truth of moral realism. You can play defense or you can play offense. When you play defense, then you just try to show that criticisms of the view don't succeed, but criticisms of alternative positions do succeed. And you could call this a kind of argument from elimination. But when you play offense, you try to give positive reasons in favor of moral realism. And that's what Dr. Sampson's going to be doing. In this video, he's gonna offer four arguments for the truth of moral realism. It was a really fun interview. I learned a lot in the process, so let's jump in.
1: So I've been interested in moral realism for a long time, but one thing you'll notice if you read the literature on moral realism is that a lot of it is realists playing defense. So they're just trying to say why arguments against realism don't succeed in the end. And they sort of take it for granted that realism is the default view. And then that's why they're always playing defense. And I actually think there's something right about that. But uh, one, a lot of people complain that, hey, all you guys ever do is play defense. Like, why don't you give us some positive arguments for your view? Do you have any good reasons to believe your view rather than just like, you know, think that all the other arguments fail? And so I thought, uh, yeah, that's actually a nice challenge. Uh, and let's see if we can meet it. So I began to sort of look for uh, different arguments out there. Think about how would you try to establish the existence of something that you can't always see uh, and can't taste or smell or something like that. And so as you'll see, I mean, some of these arguments are going to be similar to arguments for God's existence, because it's going to take inspiration from those. But basically, I thought we need to meet this challenge. This is a good challenge, perfectly legitimate challenge. And let's see if we can meet it. And I actually think we can.
0: So that's what I hope to demonstrate tonight. Okay, so first question I have for you. What is moral realism? And why should we even care whether it's true?
1: Good. Yeah. So usually, realism has three key components, and typically people add a fourth. So one key component is this view called Cognitivism. It's the view that moral judgments express beliefs, cognitive states uh, that aim to represent moral reality. So that's supposed to rule out uh, a view called Expressivism or Non-Cognitivism, according to which our moral judgments are just expressions of what we approve of or what we like. It's sort of like saying boo or you know uh, or yay or something like that. Cognitivism says, no, what we're doing when we make moral judgments like that's morally right or that's morally wrong is we're expressing beliefs. Another uh, component is stance independence or mind independence or objectivity, some people call it. That's the view that our moral uh, judgments are true or false, if they are true or false, independent of anyone's attitudes. So it doesn't depend on any hypothetical agent's beliefs or anybody's desires. So if some if some moral claim is true, it's not because some society says that it's true or you say it's true or some um, agents behind the veil of ignorance, like Ross thinks, uh, thinks it's true. So that's the stance independence component. It doesn't depend on anybody's attitudes, beliefs, or desires. And then non-nihilism, that's the view that at least some of our moral judgments are true. Where Nihilism is false. Uh, and then most want to add uh, this fourth claim, which is what I call non-skepticism. That's the view that at least some of us know at least some of the moral truth. Some, some people have moral knowledge. So those are the big ones. Cognitism or expressing beliefs. They're beliefs about a, a, a reality independent of our minds. And there really is something there. Uh, so that's the, the view. Now, why should you care if it's true? Well, um, if realism is true, then your life matters, my life matters, uh, your friend's life matters. Uh, So that's a good thing. Um, It matters how you behave. It matters how you live. Uh, That's a good thing. But uh, it also means that you might have extensive obligations to your fellow human beings. So you might have obligations to give to the poor or to help out around the house or to be nice to your uh, in-law, you know, do all those sorts of things. Um, another reason is that if realism is true, then reality is kind of weird. There are these mind independent entities, uh, that we somehow come to grasp, uh, and they have implications for how we ought to live and how governments ought to behave and what we ought to believe. That seems uh, a little strange, but if you're interested in what reality is like, that's interesting. And, uh, finally, if realism is true, you immediately face this, these, uh, metaphysical and epistemological challenges. Like, wait, where do these, uh, these in mind independent truths come from? What would explain why they're there in the first place and how do we come to know them? Uh, and one really convenient answer to that is some is the the claim that theism is true. So why are there these moral truths? Well, because there's this a perfectly good being out there that grounds all of moral reality and furthermore he helps us come to know the truths in various ways So maybe he sets up the initial conditions of the universe so that it makes it so that uh, We will come to believe in accordance with the truths Or maybe he like gives us a moral faculty or in some sense writes the law on our hearts the moral law on our hearts Something like that, but but theism would explain why moral realism is a compelling view and you might think that's a that's a cool feature uh, of moral realism. It explains why theism is true. It, l- it lends credibility to uh, theism.
0: Excellent. Yep. OK, so what are uh, what arguments are there for moral realism? Good. So I'm going to offer uh,
1: four different arguments tonight. I'm going to offer uh, a modal ontological argument for the existence of moral truths. I want to start with that one because many of your viewers are probably familiar with the modal ontological argument in philosophy of religion. So I'll start with that one. Then we'll do a Morian argument, which takes um, inspiration from G.E. Moore, who tried to prove the existence of the external world. So we're going to take inspiration from that proof. Uh, we'll do a companions and guilt argument from Terrence Cuneo, who you actually had on the channel. And I invite you know people to go see that uh, interview with, with Terrence. And then I'm going to do the last one. This is for this is the really you know high-level one. This is kind of tough, but that's why I left it for the end. The true philosophers, if they stick around, can see this one. And this is uh, the argument from deliberative indispensability. This is from David Enoch. It's worth mentioning just a few things about these arguments that I'm going to talk about tonight. The first one is that all of these are fairly recent. So the oldest argument that I'm going to talk about tonight is from 2007, which is not so long ago. Um, all four arguments appear elsewhere in philosophy. So it's not as though we're, you know, pulling this out of whole cloth. These already draw on well-respected arguments for the existence of certain things. And, uh, All of them are resistible in the following sense. Like none of these arguments are going to be so compelling. It's going to just break your brain and that's just going to force you to believe in moral realism. But I think all of them are resistible at a pretty high cost. That is, um, you can resist all these arguments, but you're going to have to deny one of the premises and it's going to be really costly to deny one of these premises. So uh, in other words, you're going to have to bite a lot of bullets by the end of the night. So hopefully for those who are watching and aren't convinced of realism, hopefully by the end of the night, they'll have... A mouthful of bullets that they've uh, bitten because they want to try to resist these arguments. So those are just some general um, comments about the arguments that I'm going to consider tonight.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm eager to jump in. So let's start with this modal ontological argument for moral realism. What is it?
1: Good. So, I mean, as I said, it takes inspiration from the modal ontological, ontological argument in the philosophy of religion. And uh, basically what it says is, hey, that's a pretty cool argument that's going on in philosophy of religion. That's a cool way to try to prove the existence of a necessarily existent entity. But um, there are some problems with the modal ontological argument, at least some difficulties for it. It's not one of my favorite arguments. I don't think it's terrible. I think it's got some good things going for it. But what's nice about the modal ontological argument for moral realism is that it sheds most of the difficulties associated with atheism, and it keeps all the good stuff. So I really like this argument because I think it keeps all the great things about uh, the the one in philosophy of religion, but loses a lot of the difficulties. So here's how it goes. You ready for me to, to hit you with this one? I'm ready. Okay, okay. Uh, so uh, here's how it goes. Uh, premise one is some putative objective moral. Period. Oh, I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah. I said I'm ready. I'm ready, but I want to show the audience. So yeah, let me fine. pause you just for a second. So let yeah. me pull, share my screen here. Okay, so here it is. Um, And let me mention this really fast. So this Google Doc that we have here, uh, it's really, really good. And it's gonna outline everything. So if you wanna go back and look at the argument, look at the objections, look at the responses, I am going to put the link to this Google Doc in the description of the video. So you can access it there when the interview is over. All right, so now the argument's on the screen and you can offer it.
1: Sure. Uh, So I should say this is due uh, in part from Christian Koons. He doesn't uh, present it as another way of running the the ontological argument from uh, philosophy of religion, but that's basically what he's doing. And Michael Humer has one he calls an ontological argument. It's similar to this one, not quite the same, but here's how you could run it the way I like it. Uh, Premise one is some putative objective moral truths are such that if they're true, they're necessarily true it is possible that at least one of these putative objective moral truths is true. So at least one of these putative objective moral truths is necessarily true. That's the way it typically goes in philosophy of religion. If at least one of these putative objective moral truths is necessarily true, then at least one of these putative objective moral truths is actually true. Therefore, at least one of these putative objective moral truths is actually true. That is, moral realism is true. Okay, so you can see that the conclusion of the argument is moral realism is true. That's what we wanted to get to. And the two, the, the two key moves in this are the first two premises. After that, virtually no one disagrees with how it goes. And as a matter of fact, premise one is widely accepted. So let's look at each premise and see how we like them and see where we could possibly resist this argument and what sort of costs are going to be associated with that. So premise one says some putative objective moral truths Are such that if they're true, they're necessarily true. In other words, um, look, the the kinds of things that moral truths are are such that they're not just contingently true. They don't just happen to be true. Um, They're such that if they're true in one world, they're true in all worlds. And most everybody agrees with that, that it's not uh, that the moral truths are such that if they're true in one world, any world that's similar to that uh, descriptively is going to be exact. Anybody, any world that's exactly like that descriptively is going to be exactly like that morally. That's the supervenience thesis, which is pretty much universally agreed upon uh, among philosophers. Uh, th- what that means is basically this. If it's morally wrong in this world to uh, you know, punch someone needlessly, then uh, anytime you have a needless punching in any possible world, it's going to be morally wrong. It's not as though it's just an accident that in this world it happens to be wrong, uh, that needless punching is, mor- is immoral. Uh, so that's the basic idea. Uh, and as I say, virtually everyone accepts that that's true. So, uh, as with the modal ontological argument philosophy religion, the real uh, the real action is in the second premise, which is the possibility premise. It says it's possible that at least one of these putative objective moral truths is true. And what do we have in mind here? We just have in mind things like uh, it's prima facie wrong to to punch somebody, it's prima facie wrong to to break your promises, to humiliate someone, to throw someone off a building. I mean, any of these will will do just fine. So at least for some of those, if they're true, they're not true just in this world, they're true in every possible world. And so what we wanna know is, and then from there it follows pretty trivially. So from there, what we wanna know is what should we say about this possibility premise? Um, well, I guess we should maybe consider some some other sorts of objections. I mean, one thing you might try to do is, uh, oh, we could take a playbook from the philosophy of religion. Um, uh, playbook and we can try to do a parody argument. So, uh, Anselm gave this famous ontological argument and then Ganilla was like, Oh, uh, you're talking about the greatest conceivable being. Well, I can think of the greatest conceivable Island. Does that mean it exists? But here in this case, since we're not talking about greatest conceivable, anythings, it's not clear that any sort of parody argument's going to work. We're not appealing to the notion of perfections. Uh, we're not talking about existence in the mind versus existence in reality. Uh, so it's just not clear how that's gonna, gonna go. Um, so I don't think parody arguments are going to work. I think, um, in general, uh, one way to challenge the possibility premise, the idea that it's at least possible that one of these, these, um, moral claims is true is to say, Hey, look for any possible moral claim you give me for any, any moral claim you give me, uh, it's at least possible that it's not true because possibility is cheap. You could easily, you know, you could easily not be true. Uh, good. So what do we say to that? Well, there's lots to say. I mean, um, the first one is that, Uh, None of the usual reasons for thinking that God is – so you know, in the philosophy of religion literature, lots of people appeal to certain things to try to show that it's possible God doesn't exist. For instance, they'll try to say, oh, well, his attributes are uh, incoherent, so you can't have uh, perfect foreknowledge and freedom because if he knows what he's always going to do, then he's not free not to do the thing that he knows he's going to do or the paradox of the stone. There's no such thing as an omnipotent being or – or, you know, some people try to show that omniscience is incompatible with uh, perfect goodness because you have to know what it's like to sin, but a perfect being can't know what it's like. to Okay, the point is, that's a way of trying to show that uh, it's impossible for God to exist, but none of that stuff comes up in the moral case. Uh, so that's not going to be a problem. Uh, none of the standard arguments against uh, God's existence, uh, like the problem of evil or divine hiddenness, really work here. That just doesn't apply to moral truths. Um, and furthermore, I mean, uh, it's not clear. So... It's not clear why it would be uh, impossible for certain moral truths to be true, because none of the standard arguments against realism are intended to show that realism is impossible. Uh, If you take the argument from queerness, which has two versions, a metaphysical version, which is like, hey, these are really weird, or an epistemological version, which is like, how would we come to know the moral truths if they're independent of our minds and they're out there? Um, or the argument from disagreement or evolutionary debunking. Or more recently, there's been moral objections to moral realism. The idea is that it's uh, morally wrong to believe in moral realism because you think that how we ought to behave here depends on the truths out there. And there's something, you know, not sensitive to the world about that. Okay, but notice all of the, none of those try to show that it's impossible for moral truths to exist. And if that's true, then we don't really have any reason to think that it's impossible for moral re- truths to exist, which means that it is possible for them to exist. But then if it's possible for them to exist, then uh, it looks like we're in good shape with respect to the possibility premise. It looks like some moral truths are such that they're possibly true. And since all moral truths uh, are such that if they're true, they're necessarily true, then at least some moral truths are true. And that would mean that realism is true. So that was quick, but those are some general thoughts about uh, why the modal ontological argument for moral realism looks like it's in much better shape than an already pretty good argument, which is the ontological argument for God's existence.
0: Yeah, so you in the notes you mentioned three kinds of objections that someone can try to offer, and I'm just doing this to sum up what you said. The first was a kind of parody argument, but um, do you do you think a parody argument works in this case or not? It's
1: not clear how it would. So, I mean, the the way Ganillo runs it is he's like, "Oh, you're th- uh, the greatest conceivable." Anselm says, "Look, let's think of the greatest conceivable being." Well, it's better to exist than not exist. So it must have existence, this being, which means that the greatest conceivable being exists. And Ganella says, okay, I'm thinking of the greatest conceivable island. Well, an island that exists is better than one that doesn't exist. So uh, it must exist too. But notice that that all works because you're talking about the greatest conceivable this or that and reasoning about what properties are perfections or something like that. I haven't done any of that stuff. I've appealed to a claim that literally everyone agrees with, which is just if one of these moral truths are true, they're necessarily true. That's built into the nature of moral truths. And again, that just follows trivially from uh, the the thesis that uh, the moral properties supervene on the descriptive properties, which is and that thesis is just this: that anytime you have um, a descript- anytime you have moral properties associated with a certain uh, descriptive property, then anytime those descript- descriptive properties are instantiated in any possible world, you also get that moral property. Everybody agrees with that, and so uh, I just appeal to this totally uncontroversial claim in order to show you that if moral properties exist and are associated with certain descriptive properties, that's true of every possible world. That's the idea. So it's not clear how the parity argument is going to go in the moral case, but though it is clear in the God case.
0: Yeah. So the second kind of objection is the objection to that possibility premise, which is premise two. Yep. That said it is possible that at least one of these putative objective moral truths is true. Yeah. Now, I'm going to put uh, Justin Mooney's comment up because it's relevant. He said, in response to this, to what you said about this objection, he said, well, given premise one, any argument against moral truths being true is, in effect, an argument against their possibility, too. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah. So, uh, that's, I mean, so take the evolutionary debunking argument that's supposed to be, that's supposed to be an argument against realism, but it doesn't show that, uh, that more realism is impossible. Instead, it just shows, look, if there were these truths, we couldn't come to know them, but that just means, so what they're supposed to, what that's supposed to show is it's really, uh, improbable given the evidence that we have about our evolutionary origins, that realism is true. Um, now that would so that's improbable. But but what I want to say is, look, let's take all your arguments, and if we sum them up, it may be that absent the argument that I just gave, realism is really 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 implausible. But now I add this extra piece of evidence, uh, Im- improbable. Add this extra piece of evidence, which is the ontological argument, and it says, hey, as long as it's possible, and you guys never said it's impossible. All your arguments just show it's improbable. Uh, if it, as long as it's possible, then that means that it's actual. And now it's hot. now we should adjust our credences in light of the new evidence, which is now it makes it really probable, or at least significantly more probable than all those arguments suggest. That's the idea. So the
0: key, yeah, the key to block this one is to make sure there there's an argument showing the impossibility of yeah these moral truths.
1: Yeah, none of these uh, suggest that um, that moral realism is impossible, only improbable, and so. I want to, let's just grant all of that. I'll say, you know, conditional on all those arguments and nothing more. It may be that um, more realism is improbable, but then add the piece of evidence that I gave. And when you add a piece of evidence that can change the total evidence. And I want to suggest it boosts things significantly because all you need to get this argument going
0: is the possibility. None of them, none of those arguments rule it out. Okay. And then the third and final objection, I don't know if you said anything about this yet. Is to deny... The S5 rule, basically. Yeah, that's right.
1: I left that out because I thought I was going too long. But yeah, the S5 rule is just a rule of inference that says if something is possibly necessary, then it's necessarily necessary. Uh, And that's a rule of modal logic, uh, the details of which I'm not going to go into, mostly not because, you know, I just don't have time. It's because I don't really know the details there. Um, But I can just say that typically um, people think that that's a pretty decent rule. Now, look, you could go in and and deny it, but you need to ask yourself, is that really why you don't believe in moral realism? I mean, is it that, oh, I would accept moral realism except for uh, I just have these qualms about S5. Um, Typically, that's just not the problem that people have. Uh, And to the extent that they think they say that is the problem, that's why they don't accept moral realism. It's uh, doubtful. Um, Yeah. All right. Maybe. I mean, if you really do have qualms about S5, fair enough, then you can resist this argument. Fair enough.
0: All right, so let's move on to the next one then. So this is the Morian argument for moral realism. What is it?
1: Good, and- yeah. So uh, this takes inspiration from G.E. Moore. Uh, G. Moore famously gave this proof of the external world. Proof is probably too strong, but uh, basically there are these skeptics who said, hey, look, we don't know. Or there either is no uh, external world or we don't know that there is. And he gave this famous proof. Well, he says, I'll give you an argument that there is. Here's a hand, Here's a hand and here's another. Uh, And if those are, these are hands, that was the first premise, these are hands. uh, They're part of the external world, so there's something in part of the external world. Now, if you take a philosophy or an epistemology class, this is one of the arguments that you're going to consider, and it's very controversial whether or not that's a good way of arguing, uh, but I should say, uh, I think the the most compelling reasons for thinking that's not a good way of of arguing are specific to that argument, but there are other ways of running Morian kinds of arguments that I think are perfectly good arguments. So... um, there are, in philosophy, you may know this, all kinds of arguments for highly revisionary views. Uh, by revisionary views, I mean views that would just, uh, if true, would just change the the way we think about reality, like fundamentally. For example, there are people who argue for nihilism about consciousness, the view that no one is conscious. Uh, nihilism about time, there's no such thing as time, no such thing as motion, no such thing as meaning, composite objects, uh, and for, they argue for various types of uh, skepticism, so external world skepticism or the other mind skepticism, the view that you can't know that there are other minds. Um, and so what this argument does is uh, it says, hey, look, one way to combat all those kinds of highly revisionary views is to employ a Mauryan argument. And so that's what basically what uh, this argument proposes to do is to sort of follow that model that Moore gave and try to show, look, I'll show you the existence of something, just like Moore tried to show the existence of the external world. Uh, we'll try to show the existence of moral facts by means of, um, by means of a Mauryan argument. Okay, and there's going to be lots of objections, but uh, I'll try to to knock them all out. But here's the argument, uh, and notice that the conclusion of it is that uh, moral realism is true. So the Morian argument uh, goes like this. If it's pro tanto, objectively wrong to punch a helpless child, then there is at least one objective moral truth. It is pro tanto, wrong, objectively wrong to punch a helpless child, so there is at least one objective moral truth. If there is at least one objective moral truth, then moral realism is true, so moral realism is true. Now, uh, pretty much everyone accepts six, the first premise. Uh, And so the real action is in premise seven, the second premise. It is pro tanto objectively wrong to punch a helpless child. The first thing, and I can hear it right now, people out there objecting, uh, the first objection you're going to get is that that's question begging. That's the very thing we're trying to establish is that it's objectively wrong to do this or that. Okay, so that's what the complaint is. Here's why that misses the point of what Moore is doing uh, because he's doing more than just presenting this argument. I sort of like to think of, uh, of what Moore's doing is offering a meta-argument. So what he's doing is off- offering an invitation for people to consider uh, the relative plausibility of different arguments. So if you're a nihilist, you think there's no moral truths out there, presumably you got some arguments for that. You got some line of reasoning to that conclusion. Great. I think what Moore would say and what I would like to say is uh, show me the argument. What's the argument like? Presumably it's going to have some premises that lead to the conclusion. Oftentimes, those premises are going to be uh, very speculative and very abstract metaphysical premises. Uh, they're going to be highly controversial among uh, most philosophers because basically everything is. Uh, and then it's going to lead to the conclusion that moral, moral nihilism is true. Great. And then you got this Morian premise over here that's like, hey, uh, it has one highly uncontroversial premise. That's the first premise. And then the second one is also highly uncontroversial. Now, it's controversial among nihilists. But uh, not among many people more than that, and it just says that it's morally wrong to punch kids for fun. Now that seems uh, imminently plausible to me. I don't know of many things more plausible than that. For instance, uh, like I, uh, you know, I have a, a bathroom just on the other side of this wall. I'm pretty sure it's there. I'm also pretty sure. I mean, the the degree of confidence I have in both of those claims that there's a bathroom on the other side of this wall and that uh, it's wrong to it's at least a little bit wrong to punch a kid. I'm a bit roughly the, uh, the same in terms of my confidence of each of those. I'm not confident of much more uh, than I am that it's r- pro tanto wrong to punch. That just, means primi- or that just means wrong, uh, at least upon initial appearances. Now, um, so that's, that's what he's, uh, he's pointing out. And now he wants to say, look, take your argument that you gave with its controversial premises. Now take mine with its highly plausible premises. Now, which one should you accept? It's a, it's a plausibility um, comparison sort of argument. And I think he thinks, look, uh, for any argument for these highly revisionary views, especially nihilism, uh, the, the Morian argument is gonna come out more plausible, all things considered. So begs the question doesn't even get at the, it, it just fails to understand what the argument is doing. It's asking you to compare two different arguments and there's no question begging when you're comparing the plausibility of different arguments. So that's why I think the uh, begs the question argument doesn't quite work. There are better objections, I think, to uh, Morian arguments. One uh, objection you might have is uh, an evolutionary debunking argument. What that tries to do is says, yeah, I know that you think it's wrong to punch kids, but I can explain why you think that even though it's not wrong to punch kids. And that has to do with your evolutionary history. Evolution fitted you with beliefs like that because it's it helps you survive and reproduce and pass on your genes. Okay. That's one thing you might say. Um, and then uh, I don't know if I want to consider the other ones because they're not as popular. Um Let's talk about the evolutionary debunking arguments. So what what can be said about that? I think the first thing is that um, uh, recent, I mean, there's been a ton of literature on evolutionary debunking arguments. And I say in the notes here that debunking arguments are dead. Uh, I think that's basically right. That may be a little overstatement, but more or less, I think people have realized that uh, where the flaw is uh, in those arguments. I mean, to begin with, if you're a theist, then evolutionary debunking arguments just aren't gonna be compelling to you because you have a very easy explanation for how we could come to know the moral truths. Um, that's basically what evolutionary debunking arguments are doing. They're saying, uh, look, you may have really confident moral beliefs, but they're not true because, uh, there's no relation between your beliefs and the truths independent of your mind because evolution is determining what you believe. Um, but if you're a a moral or if you're a theist, then you have an easy explanation for why someone would make it so that your beliefs match up with the moral truths, particularly God. Um, and even if you're an atheist, uh, here's a simplification of the of the evolutionary debunking literature, but you could pose the following dilemma to the the debunker. And it goes like this, look, either when I'm answering these evolutionary debunking challenges, I can assume that we know some moral truths and then I can tell you the story about how we come to know them. Or you might say, no, 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 you don't get to assume any moral truths are true as you try to tell me how our moral beliefs can match up with the moral truths. But then it's not clear that um, if I can't assume anything about morality, then uh, I don't even know anything about morality. So I couldn't get evidence that I'm mistaken about it because I don't know the first thing about it. So either uh, I get to tell you how we can uh, come to know the moral truths by employing first some substantive moral principles and explaining how we come to know them, or I just don't, I couldn't possibly get evidence uh, suggesting that I don't know the truth about morality. Okay. Let me explain how the first one works. So uh, a lot of people, so, so the evolutionary debunking challenge goes, Hey, how can you come to know the moral truths that are independent of your mind uh, when evolution is influencing you? Um, A lot of people say, Oh, I can tell you the story about how I'm reliable, but I'm going to need to assume that for instance, punching kids for fun is wrong, or uh, it's good to survive, or it's good to, uh, you know, not starve to death. I'm going to have to assume something like that and then tell you how evolution would fit us with that belief. Um, and then a lot of people say, if you let me do that, then I can tell you the story why evolution evolution would fit me with beliefs that match up with the moral truths. And we may be mistaken about some of them, but we can use rational reflection to self-correct, to move from the good starting points to the truth about morality by using rational reflection. So that's one story. Now, a lot of people say, no, 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 you don't get to use, you don't get to start with substantive moral principles that you think that, you know, you have to assume, you know, nothing. Uh, well then there's, Two, two sort of challenges to that. The first one I said is if, you, if we know nothing about morality, then we could never get any evidence to suggest that we're mistaken about morality because we don't know what it would even be to be mistaken about morality. That's one challenge. Another challenge is try to use that, that method on any other sort of way of coming to know about the world. For instance, ask somebody, hey, how do you know that your perception is reliable, but you can't rely on any perception at all? Okay, so tell me how it's reliable. And then it's like, oh, well, I can't do that. But now what you've done is you've just basically uh, offered an argument for global skepticism that we can't even trust our perception Because for basically any faculty that you have, you're going to have to rely a little bit on that faculty to explain why it's uh, truth tracking. For instance, suppose somebody says, I, I don't think any of your memories are reliable. Try to show me that your memory is reliable, but don't rely on memory. There's no way to do that. You can't do that. Uh, so, so basically the challenge is either just a, a version of global skepticism, but very well hidden, or um, you got to let us start with some premises that we know, and then we can tell you how we can reason from those to the, the other truths about morality. That's basically how it goes. Okay, that's a big, long way of saying uh, the debunking arguments don't work. Here's what I want to say on top of that. Even if, uh, even if none of that stuff that I said is correct, here's what we do know whether debunking arguments are successful is highly controversial in philosophy. And so if you think, look, if you think when lots of really smart people disagree about something, you ought to significantly lower your credence in the view that, that, that that's correct, then you should definitely lower your credence that evolutionary debunking arguments are good. But virtually everyone agrees that you shouldn't punch a kid. Uh, now, a few people don't, but far fewer people disagree with that, which means that that enjoys much more plausibility, much more um, credibility than the debunking explanation, which means the more an argument comes out on top again. Because again, we're just comparing plausibility of two arguments. There's more to say, but I'll, I think I'll leave it there.
0: <laughs> okay, so let me jump in. I wanted to give you space to to lay it out there. So I thought Andrew Moon made an interesting comment here with respect to that second premise. So the second premise said, it is proto-tanto objectively wrong to punch a helpless child. And Andrew Moon said, it's plausible that it's wrong to punch a helpless child. It's less plausible that it's objectively wrong to punch a helpless child. That's not a common sense claim. It's loaded with philosophy. So what do you think about that? Good, good challenge. So
1: two things. First of all, um, even if it's like, even if we, all we get is it's not objectively wrong, but it's wrong, then we got the error theorist out of here. Okay, but um, I also, I also want to concede that it's less, plaus- less plausible that it's objectively wrong, but it's still highly plausible. Now he says, "Oh, but it's loaded with philosophy, objectivity. Uh, I agree that the no- that uh, objectivity, the word, and uh, is you know a philosopher's term and probably not well known out there, or what it consists in. But I actually think you know people on the street have the concept and employ it, they just don't they maybe wouldn't attach that word to it. So if you ask somebody, "Hey, if you punch that kid, uh, would that be wrong? Pretty much everybody's going to say yes." Uh, is it wrong? Because like uh, most people in America think it's wrong. Is that what explains why it's wrong? Most people are gonna say, no, that has nothing to do. No. Even if everybody in America thought it was okay to punch a kid, it still wouldn't be okay to punch a kid. Is it wrong? Because like it, uh, it, you know, is it hurts your feelings when you punch the kid or it's unpleasant for you? I think a lot of them say, no, that has nothing to do with it either. It's about the pain that the kid endures. And you could ask them all these questions about what makes it wrong that punching this kid, uh, punching this kid is wrong. And then I think uh, what you're going to find is that, no, they find it uh, imminently plausible that it's objectively wrong. Now, you're right that uh, it's more plausible that it's wrong, maybe not even objectively, but it's just wrong, you know, irrespective of the objectivity of it all. But I think you can, add, you can go further, go, go strong and say it's objectively wrong because they do have that intuition that it is, really, that it is objectively wrong. And you can do, get that just by eliciting these sorts of responses from them by asking them questions.
0: So that's what I'd say to Andrew. But I like the challenge. All right, so there, there is more you could say about this Morian argument, but we're at the 32 minute mark. So I'm going to, and we've only covered two arguments. So yep. I'm going to go ahead and move on to the companions in guilt argument. So let me pull this up.
1: As you're pulling let, it up, can I say one thing that I really wanted to, to just hit very quickly. Uh, yep. So I just wanted to point out that after we've done all that stuff that I just said, we can also do our own debunking of error theorists. So uh, we let the error theorists sort of debunk our, our beliefs in various ways, but we should, you know, get in on the debunking as well. So here's just some things some realists c- can say to error theorists about why they like error theory, but uh, it has nothing to do with the truth of error theory. So we could say, look, here's why you accept error theory. It's because morality is really onerous and it means that you have lots of you have lots of obligations and it's more pleasant to you to think that we don't have obligations than that we do. Or some philosophers have an abnorm, abnormal fear of being duped. They don't want to be too credulous, and so they like, don't want to believe in objective morality. Some people think it's fun to wear the black hat in philosophy. That means to be the bad guy. A lot of people think that, ooh, nihilism, that's, uh, ooh, that's crazy. And some people like being associated with that. Uh, some views, uh, like, like nihilism, are rewarded in the profession because they're novel. And so lots of people, you might think some people are writing books about these or articles about these because they're going to be rewarded by the profession. Some enjoy the sense of cleverness associated with debunking cherished views, and some have an exaggerated allegiance to science due to the appearance of rationality associated with that allegiance. These are all ways that the realist can say, hey, look, I can debunk just as well as you can.
0: So anyways, okay. All right. Let me pull up the next question here. So what is the companions in guilt argument? For moral realism,
1: good. This comes from uh, Terence Cuneo. and basically the idea of any companions and guilt argument is uh, it sort of draws the person's attention to something that they think that they're committed to, and says, "Hey, you're committed to this thing. Objective morality is just like that thing. So if you think if so if you think that objective morality has to go, then this thing that you're committed to, it also has to go. That's the way that uh, companions of guilt arguments work in general. So basically it says, pick your poison. Do you want to uh, keep the thing that you cherish, but you got to keep objective morality? Or do you want to give up on objective morality, but you also got to give up on the thing that you, that you hold dear? Um, so that's the, sort of how it works. And here is, um, sort of,
0: oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've pulled it up now.
1: You got it. Okay, yeah. So you can see uh, premise one is if they're objective. Epi- so this is, says, hey, the thing that you cherish is the existence of objective epistemic facts, facts about what you ought to believe, how you ought to govern your beliefs. So it says, if there are objective epistemic facts, then there are objective moral facts. If there are ob- objective epistemic facts. Therefore, there are objective moral facts. That is, moral realism is true. Great. So uh, I think most people agree that if there are objective epistemic facts, then there are objective moral facts. There may be some people. Who doubt that, but it's not clear how, I mean, if you already think that there are facts about the way we ought to conduct our beliefs, independent of our minds that are uh, uninvented, or they're rather discovered, then it's not clear how you'd say, well, yeah, there are definitely those, but not about the way that you ought to behave. That's just a totally different thing. It's sort of like, uh, look, you're already taking on all the metaphysical baggage, all the epistemological baggage. Like, how would we know about these objective epistemic truths? You're already taking that on by believing in objective epistemic facts. So you're not really doing yourself any favors by, you know, keeping one objective epistemic facts, but denying objective moral facts. So that one's the more uh, the, the one that's on firmer ground. Of course, uh, this one says there are objective epistemic facts. Uh, And that one is going to be controversial, at least the most controversial. Still, I think a lot of people accept it. But um, as I say here, one response or one objection to this is going to be the view called epistemic uh, instrumentalism. That is the view that um, that's a view uh, about how you ought to conduct your intellectual life according to which you ought to believe something uh, if and only if it serves some goal of yours to believe that thing. Uh, And there you would say, look, it's not objective. It's not mind independent. It depends on my desires, what I ought to believe. And typically, I like to believe the truths, but, you know, not always. And if not, then I shouldn't believe it. And so, um, you know, that's one way to escape, to try to say, no, no, I reject the uh, the objectivity of epistemic facts. Um, let me see. So uh, w- w- what do I say about that one? I mean, uh, there are many things to say. It's a whole debate about whether epistemic instrumentalism is true. But I mean, here, let me just point out two things. About it. The first thing is that if you endorse uh, instrumentalism, then you should really like Pascal's wager, both for the existence of God and for the existence of moral truths. So, um, according to Pascal's wager, I mean, it, actually, this is like not even the original wager. So, the original wager, as I understand it, says that what you ought to do is uh, you ought to go do something, not believe something. You ought to go uh, investigate the evidence for God's existence and go to church and say some prayers and stuff like that. But uh, if you think that, no, what you ought to believe is entirely dependent on your goals, then um, for many people it's going to be it's going to promote their goals to believe in uh, more realism, um, and so they're not making any sort of mistake. So you're going to lose the ability to criticize people who believe more realism because uh, it you know promotes their goals. Similarly with God, a, a big criticism of people who believe in God is that they just believe it because it comforts them or makes them feel better. You're going to lose that uh, ability to to criticize them on those grounds because. Um, many people are going to do exactly what instrumentalism says. That is, they're going to believe things that achieve their goals or help them promote their goals. So uh, that's just to say, fine. If you want to reject, you know, uh, reject objective morality, fine. But you should embrace, you know, uh, God's existence and uh, and then turn around and uh, accept moral facts as well, on instrumentalist grounds, not on you know objective grounds or something like that. That's one thing to say. Uh, another objection you might, uh, another objection to this argument is just to deny premise twelve, the claim that there are objective epistemic facts by just being a total error theorist about normativity, just saying, look, there are no uh, normative properties whatsoever. Um, uh, So that's just how it goes. Uh, One problem with that is just that you're going to um, lose all the standard epistemic properties like knowledge. So knowledge is justified, true belief, plus maybe some other conditions. But If you think there's no reasons, there's no justification at all, then there's no such thing as knowledge because justification is part of knowledge. So nobody knows anything. You don't know your own phone number. you don't know who your mom is, you don't know anything. Um, there's no such thing as justification. There's no such thing as understanding. The virtue of open-mindedness just doesn't exist because open-mindedness is like the right, the right kind of mean, the justified mean between being too credulous and uh, not being credulous enough. Um, curiosity, healthy skepticism, all of these virtues are means that are that strike the the right balance between two ways of being. There's no, going to be no such thing as irrationality. So again, all of these, you can do it. I mean, you could deny them if you want, but you're going to have to pay a price. And that's what I was saying at the beginning. Look, if you want to reject all these, if you want to accept all these uh, implications, perfectly fine. But again, you're just going to have a mouthful of bullets at the end of the night, um, which is fine with me if that's what you want to do. Um, I should say one last thing. I mean, a lot of uh, people who just embrace epistemic epi- uh, error theory, a lot of people want to go to them and say, hey, you guys are being incoherent in some way. I actually, think they're not being incoherent. I think it's a perfectly coherent view. I think it's not a very attractive view, but I don't think there's anything incoherent about it. So, if you want to just be a total error theorist about everything, at the end of the day, there's, there may be nothing more to say to
0: you. Okay. So, just to be clear, let me put back up that argument. Okay. So, I want to, I want to give some examples of epistemic facts. So. Yep. Give me you've uh, you've you've named a couple already, but just list some that you think are, you know, pretty plausible to uh, maybe somebody that's an error theorist.
1: Here are some that that some people like. Uh, You shouldn't believe uh, things that are uh, overwhelmingly uh, uh, countervailed by your evidence or so your your evidence, things that are totally under supported by your evidence. You should believe in accordance with your evidence. If your evidence overwhelmingly supports some belief, you should hold it. Um, and if the belief is amb- if the evidence is ambiguous about some proposition, you ought to suspend judgment about it. a lot of people think those are facts and those are facts that you ought to uh, believe in accordance with even if you don't want to even if you want to believe that there are aliens if you don't have the evidence for it you shouldn't believe that there are aliens and even if you want to believe in I don't know whatever sort of crazy thing uh, you shouldn't do it um, and even if you d- yeah even if you don't want to believe in something that's plainly obvious uh, and supported by the evidence you should do it even if you don't want to independent of your desire so that's those are the kinds of uh, epistemic facts I should say a lot of people think that theists are um, irrational they're making a mistake they're believing uh, they're too credulous they they don't believe in accordance with their evidence and that's a criticism that they often get same thing with moral realists uh, they're too credulous you guys sh- aren't believing in accordance with the evidence that's a criticism you're not l- respecting the epistemic moral facts or the sorry the epistemic uh, facts that's the kind of stuff
0: yeah uh, and I like those examples I think one that I hear a lot that, that seems like, and, uh, when, when I hear people say it, they, they definitely sound like they're saying this in an objective sense, not just a, Hey, this is my personal preference, the way that I prefer to, you know, form my beliefs, but, um, your preferences, you know, they, they're just as legitimate as mine. Yeah. Um, and that is this statement extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence yeah that that pops up a lot when that's said that's it seems like it's being intended to be a hey i have this objective epistemic duty <laughs> to yeah. only believe an epi- uh, a an extraordinary claim when i have extraordinary evidence in the absence of that extraordinary evidence i I'm just not justified in believing that uh, extraordinary claim. That language is so loaded with this kind of um, this duty, this justification. You're you're within your epistemic rights, all this this kind of stuff. Higher independence. Because if I said, yeah, but I really like believing extraordinary claims without
1: extraordinary evidence. Why can't I do that? you shouldn't do that that it doesn't even it doesn't matter if you want to believe it this is this is a rule that it applies to you independent of your attitudes independent of your beliefs and your desires so yeah they are sort of drawing on the objectivity here yeah
0: yeah so um it seems like that would be you know a a it, you have to choose like do you want to hang on to uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence or are you willing to um or I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, you give. You have to choose here.
1: Yeah. If you if you hold on that claim, it's a perfectly fine claim. You can hold on to the claim that extraordinary claims to depend on extraordinary evidence. Uh, but just know that you're appealing to objective moral, uh, objective epistemic facts. And if you believe in those, you should also believe in epistemic moral facts. So it's fine. You can hold on to that claim, but you should also believe in moral realism.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So you already mentioned a few objections i think with epistemic instrumentalism and then uh error theory which just bites the bullet Mm. but um yeah that this one again it's just are you willing to bite the bullet yeah yeah okay Um, i
1: can't stop you from doing if you i mean many people are happy to, not many some people are happy to do it and at the end of the day i can say all right well there you go
0: (laughs) all right so Now, let's talk about the fourth and final argument, and then we'll be going to questions. So what is David Enoch's argument for moral realism? Good. So this is,
1: as I mentioned, the the most complicated one. So here he's, um, it's an argument from deliberative indispensability. Um, What does that mean? Well, the basic idea is this. uh, In the philosophy of science and philosophy of mathematics, indispensability arguments are pretty popular. So um, many people think that electrons exist. Why do they think that? Nobody's ever seen an electron. Photons can't hit an electron, bounce back, and have us see it with our eyes. Why do they believe uh, electrons exist if no one's ever seen it? Uh, Well, because um, it seems like they can't explain uh, the world around them without appeal to the standard model, which is the model of the atom, which includes the electron. Uh, They can't explain why matter behaves the way it does without appealing to electrons. And so because they can't explain things without appealing to them, they're indispensable. Uh, many people think that justifies people in believing, scientists specifically, in believing that they exist. Even though they've never seen it, uh, they can't continue their science without, uh, po- without positing those things. And that justifies them in believing it exists. Similarly, a lot of people think you can't do physics without appealing to mathematical claims. Um and so if you can't uh, achieve this this thing that is very important for the purposes of human beings, that is the scientific enterprise, without appeal to numbers, then you're justified in believing that there are numbers. And now he says, yeah, that's a perfectly good argument. Explanatory indispensability is a good justification for believing that something exists. But also there's this other kind of indispensability, deliberative indispensability, and it's just as respectable. Uh, and it also grounds commitment to... Uh, certain things, specifically realistically cons- cons- uh, construed normative truths. So basically, uh, if you if you're wondering, like, wait, why does uh, indispensability for the purposes of science justify you in believing that something exists? The idea is, look, there's this project that's very important to us, trying to understand what happens outside of our minds. We can't do it without positing these things. That justifies us in believing they exist. There's this other thing we can't do. Uh, we can't live our lives. It's crucial. It's central to our lives, just as explaining things outside of our mind is. It's deliberating, thinking about how we ought to behave, how we ought to live. Uh, we do it almost, you know, virtually every second of every day, uh, and uh, it presupposes that there are mind-independent normative truths, and that justifies us in believing that they exist. Okay, so let's. That's the broad outline. Let's see the details of how it works.
0: Yeah, I'm pulling it up right now.
1: Okay, so. Here's the argument. If something is instrumentally indispensable to an intrinsically indispensable project, then we are epistemically justified for that very reason in believing that that thing exists. The deliberative project, like the scientific project, is intrinsically indispensable. Irreducibly normative truths are instrumentally indispensable to the deliberative project. Therefore, we are epistemically justified in believing that they're irreducibly normative truths. Okay, so that first premise has some stuff going on in it. It says, if something is uh, instrumentally indispensable to an intrinsically indispensable pro- uh, project, then blah, 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 blah. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, something is instrumentally indispensable if it's such that if you don't do this thing, you'll undermine the project. So um, a lot of people think that if you don't posit electrons, we can't carry on with um, science. If you don't... Um, If you don't believe that uh, perception is reliable, you can't carry on with the scientific project. Enoch thinks that's what explains why you're justified in believing the deliverances of your perception. Um, It's because, look, you couldn't even carry on in the world. You couldn't explain things outside your mind without without presupposing that your perception is reliable, and that justifies you in believing that it is. Now, one thing you might do is say, That doesn't sound like a very good justification for believing your perception or believing your memory or believing inference to the best explanation is a good method for doing science. But then he'll say, okay, well, now you tell me what justifies us in doing those things. And I think, so that's a challenge for anyone out there who doesn't like that mode of argument. Um, Well, you tell me what explains why why we can believe that our uh, perception is reliable or why inference to the best explanation or induction are good modes of reasoning in science. Okay. So uh anyway, so uh that's what instrumental uh, indispensability is. If you don't do this thing, you'll undermine the project. So uh a fork is not instrumentally indispensable for eating. You could eat without using a fork, so it's not instrumentally indispensable. But opening your mouth probably is instrumentally indispensable for eating. You really can't eat without uh opening your mouth. Uh now you might say, Oh no, no, you could like you know, close your mouth and yeah. then shove it in very, very, you know, uh very small.
0: Have pieces. it pumped into you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um Yeah. So the idea here isn't that there's literally no way you could do it because of course we could do science without positing electrons. I mean, we could, you know, we'd suck at it, but we could continue to do that. The idea is that it would be extremely unattractive to proceed without doing this thing. That's what he means by instrumentally indispensable. He doesn't mean literally impossible for you to do something, you know? Uh, so that's the idea. So you probably could eat without opening your mouth, but it would just be terrible. Um, so it's just very unattractive to try to do that. Whereas, like with the, uh, instead of using a fork, you could probably use a spoon or chopsticks or you know other kinds of utensils. Uh, he thinks that relying on perception, memory, induction, inference to the best explanation are all instrumentally indispensable for doing science. He thinks positing electrons and numbers and a black hole at the center center of the Milky Way galaxy, all of these are uh, explanatorily indispensable. Can't do science without doing those things. Um, so, uh, so that's instrumentally ind- instrumental indispensability. Now, what's intrinsic indispensability? He says that uh, the deliberative project is intrinsically indispensable. Uh, that's a project that is both descriptively non-optional and rationally non-optional. Non-optional, what does that mean? It means that it's the kind of thing that we can't help but do. And furthermore, we shouldn't stop doing. Uh, so we can't stop trying to explain the world outside of our, our minds, and we shouldn't try to stop. That's why... Uh, Science is an intrinsically uh, indispensable project. We can't stop deliberating, and we shouldn't stop deliberating. That's why it's an intrinsically indispensable project. Playing chess is the kind of thing that we are not forced to do, and it's not clear that we ought to continue to try to do. So that's not intrinsically uh, uh, indispensable. But the explanatory project and the deliberative project, he thinks, is. Okay. So that's what he means by if something is instrumentally indispensable to an intrinsically indispensable project, then we are epistemically justified for that very reason in believing that the thing exists. And he thinks this is the principle that explains why it's okay to posit electrons, even though no one has ever seen one. Why it's okay to posit a black hole at the center of the Milky Way, even though no one has ever seen it. Numbers, even though no one has ever seen numbers. Okay. So he thinks if you deny 14, then tell me why you know we can posit these other things that no one has ever seen. Premise two or uh, 15 here says that the deliberative project is uh, intrinsically indispensable. That's rationally non optional for us. That is, it's the kind of thing we can't stop doing and we shouldn't stop doing. And then uh, 16 is going to be the controversial one. Uh, Irreducibly normative truths are instrumentally indispensable to the deliberative project. That is, you have to posit uh, normative truths independent of our minds in order to do the deliberative project. Why on earth would that be the case? here's the basic idea. When you're deliberating, you're thinking about what to do. Uh, And when you're doing that, you're not thinking, you're thinking about, I mean, just think about like uh, you're deciding between two careers. So as you're doing that, what are you deliberating about? Well, you're thinking about salary. You're thinking about location. You're thinking about what your parents will think. You're thinking about what your high school friends will think. Will they think this is a cool project or a cool uh, career thinking about uh, what, your, you know, what your wife or your kids will say, whatever, you're thinking about lots of things. Here, it looks like you're trying to get some fact of the matter independent of your mind. You're not asking, uh, to the extent that you're asking what your friends will think, it's not because you think that determines the facts about it, it's instead because that determines how much they respect you, it determines the facts about whether it's a good idea to, go to, to do it. In other words, he says, look, uh, trying to decide what to do feels like trying to come to a conclusion about a factual question. It feels like just trying to figure out, you know, uh, when did the universe begin to exist or any other sort of factual question. You're deliberating about the details like that. You're not looking inward to say like, um, uh, what do I desire? I mean, to some degree, you're going to think about that, but you could get it wrong because you can think about past decisions you've made where you did what you desired, but you were just wrong about it. So you don't think that merely acting in accordance with your desires uh, makes it the case that that's what you ought to do. So in other words, what he thinks is, when you're deliberating, you're trying to come to a, a conclusion about what's true independent of your minds. Uh, and that's that could be true only if you're you're thinking that there are mind-independent normative truths. And if that's true, then it's indispensable for the project of deliberating. And if it's indispensable for the project of deliberating, which is an intrinsically indispensable project, then you're justified in positing their existence. And so you're uh, therefore we're epistemically justified in believing that they're irreducibly. Normative truths. Now that's not quite moral realism. That's normative realism. Uh, but then you could just add the moral part. Moral, the moral truths are part of the normative realm. Uh, so moral truths are going to come out of there. That's the basic idea.
0: Gotcha. Told you that was
1: the uh, the more complicated one.
0: <laughs> no, no, I've I've heard lots about Enoch's argument and I haven't really looked into it deeply. So that's something I still need to do, but I'm glad you've given a kind of introduction here. Now you mentioned kind of along the way a few uh, objections did you want to add any thing there uh, let's see um i mean one thing is uh one big
1: objection is oh well all you've shown us is that we need to posit these things so we have practical reasons to posit these things but not that we're justified in believing them uh but here he'll say look uh that sort of criticism apply i mean applies just the same to all those other things uh, uh, numbers electrons the reliability, perception, memory induction. So I think what he wants to say is our belief in moral truths is as respectable as our belief that our perception is reliable, memory is reliable, electrons exist, uh, numbers exist. It's as credible as those. What he wants to do is say, Look, our, our belief in the moral truths is on the same plane as those. So if you think that, you know, that's not very respectable, okay, fine. But notice what you've just done. You've bitten huge bullets, which is we shouldn't believe that electrons exist. We shouldn't believe numbers exist. We shouldn't believe there's a black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy and so on. So I think what he wants to do is establish a parity that is a, a, a comparability between uh, the respectability of moral truths and the respectability of all these other things. Um, let's see. What else? Um I mean, yeah, if you reject the general strategy, so you might just say, I don't even like this whole idea of indispensability in general. Again, now you face a challenge. Okay, then explain to me uh, how we're justified in believing our perception. Oh, and make sure that you don't you know, pr- uh, presuppose any perceptual truths to begin with, or tell us how our memory is reliable, or induction, or any of those other things. You tell me your story, because I have a story. It's the one I just told you, but now you need to tell me yours. Um, and, uh, a lot of people want to say, look, uh, normative truths don't explain anything, but the only reason you should ever believe that something exists is if it explains something. Uh, but there the idea, what he'll say is, well, look, I mean, that's true of all normative truths ever. None of them explain anything. So if you think in order to, to posit something, it has to explain some physical phenomenon or some observable phenomenon, then you're just an error theorist. Um, and again, you can be an error theorist if you want, you could say, uh, so, but, but you're going to have to bite these these sorts of bullets. That's the idea.
0: All right. So that ends the four arguments that we were going to cover. Uh, there was the modal ontological argument for moral realism, the Morian argument, the companions in guilt argument, and then David Enoch's argument. Those were the four. We're going to take your questions now, so you can go ahead and begin to type those questions into the chat. Just please put the word question at the beginning. Otherwise, if I don't see question at the beginning, I'm not going to be able to go through all the chat and find it. Okay. So make sure you put that word while you're typing that. If you enjoy the content that I'm producing on this channel, then please consider becoming one of my patrons. You can do that by going to the link in the description. It's www.patreon.com slash the analytic Christian. And I want to, uh, say that I really appreciate thank you Jesus he frequently sends in these super chats so tonight he sent he sent in five dollar super chat followed by uh two ninety nine cent super chats and a dollar ninety nine super chat so I just really appreciate that thank you jesus uh for all your support okay so let's see I'm trying to. Okay, so here's a question from Andrew Moon. He said, "Can Doctor Sampson explain what quasi-realism is? I've felt like I've never quite understood it. Thanks for the presentation." Yeah, great
1: question. Uh, there are people who work in metaethics, myself included, who often have the same uh, the same confusion. Like, what exactly is th- this view? So what it's trying to do is it's trying to, it's called quasi-realism because it's trying to mimic everything that realism is doing, but it's trying to um, avoid all of the metaphysical uh, baggage associated with realism and all of the epistemological baggage with realism. So basically what it uh, says is it's a version of non-cognitivism. Quasi-realism says, look, what we're doing when we're making moral judgments is we're expressing some non-cognitive attitude like our desires or our approvals or what we stand for, what we intend to do um and then they appeal to this uh this theory of truth called minimalism about truth according to which um even our non-cognitive states can come out as true in some minimal sense of truth and there so what they want to say is our moral judgments can be non-cognitive and true or false they even try to use a minimalist theory of truth to expl- to say that even non-cognitive states can be beliefs in some minimal sense. And so they try to mimic everything that the realist says. The realist says, our moral judgments are beliefs. And they're like, yeah, they're beliefs in some minimal sense. Uh, our uh, the, the moral truths are independent of our minds. And the quasi-realist says, yeah, that too. Um, and so one of the big problems for quasi-realism is this so-called problem of, of creeping minimalism. The idea is, okay, well, look, if you perfectly mimic everything that the realist says, then guess what? You're just realists. Um, so you need to explain some difference between what the realists say and what you say. And that's sort of a problem for them because the the whole project is to mimic everything that the realist says, but lose all the metaphysical and epistemological baggage. And this is what they get hammered for. Like, look, if you guys just say everything that they say, you are them. Um, so then they have to distinguish themselves. And then once they distinguish themselves, then they're going to have problems. I should say, I mean, I'm not a quasi realist just because I, I don't find um, non-cognitivism, the view that our moral judgments are non-cognitive states. I don't find that the least bit plausible. There are all sorts of, and I don't even find the motivations, very good motivations. So one big motivation for non-cognitivism is that it looks like every time someone makes a moral judgment, they're motivated to act in accordance with it. But I don't think that suggests that the only explanation for that is non-cognitivism. I think that's a terrible motivation for that view. I mean, I, there's more to say, but I'll stop right there. That's the that's the general idea. And if to the extent that you're confused, you, you are basically understanding the view because other people uh, who understand the view perfectly well can't see what the difference is between realism and quasi-reals.
0: Okay. Thank you, Jesus sent in another $7. So thank you very much thank for that. Said, and you. Brandon <laughs> 116 sent in a $5 super chat. And here's his question. How would you solve the is ought gap in regards to moral realism. You may wanna explain explain what he means by the is ought gap and then explain the, the the thing you have in mind that solves it.
1: Yeah, sure. So a lot of people um, have noticed that for any sort of descriptive statement that you make about the world, it doesn't imply anything about what you ought to do. So if I punch a kid, it causes him a lot of pain. What does that entail about what I ought to do? Well, just saying that I punched the kid entails nothing. That's a descriptive fact. Um, and it's not clear how it, how mere, any mere descriptive fact is going to entail anything about what you morally ought to do. Um, that's a bookshelf. Lots of people die of hunger every year. That doesn't entail anything about what anybody ought to do ever. And that's true of every descriptive statement. So um, so the worry is uh, this: is, the is ought problem is a problem for naturalists, people who think that the moral truths are identical to merely descriptive truths. Um, so if you're so your question is how would I solve the is ought gap? I would say Oh, I don't face that because I don't think that um, moral truths are identical to any not any descriptive fact. I think they're uh, essentially normative truths. That is, they uh, are they are by their very nature normative, and so there's just no question of like, well, how do you get from a descriptive fact to a normative fact? No, the, the normative facts are sui generis; they're their own kind, and. Uh, descriptive facts are their own kind. So you have these two different things, descriptive facts and normative facts. Whereas uh, the is-ought problem is a problem who thinks that, no, uh, descriptive facts, uh, I don't know, descriptive facts and normative facts are one and the same thing. And then the question is, wait, how could that be true? How could a merely descriptive fact or a descriptive fact uh, entail anything about what you ought to do?
0: This may be a silly way of of thinking about it, but I just want to make sure, I want to pick your brain on this for a second. Yeah, so there are in the camp of moral realists there are natural moral realists and then there are non-natural moral realists. And natural moral moral realists are making a kind of identity claim. They're saying that these descriptive facts are identical to the normative facts. Yep. Right? They're one and the same thing. Yep. Uh and we don't have time to get into how how difficult that that is to to sort out but that's one view then Mm -hmm. the non-natural moral moral realist holds to this supervenience thesis right and that's where there are descriptive facts but supervening on those descriptive facts are the normative facts they're not identical to one another that's right but there's this kind of correlation yeah and they are uh I'm looking for the term. It's every possible world. It's this setup. Yep. Um, the same normative fact is is present when you have these descriptive facts. Yep. If these descriptive facts are present, then this specific normative fact supersedes, uh, supersedes Super- on it, correct? That's absolutely right. Yeah. Good. Yeah.
1: So one big challenge to moral realism, to non-naturalist moral realism is what explains that? Why is it that every time you get these descriptive facts, you get these normative facts? And that's a a thing that they have to to work out. But usually it's by appeal to moral principles. It's the principles that explain uh, what properties, how properties are distributed across worlds. That's typically how they do it. Um, But I just wanted to point out that uh, a lot of utilitarians are naturalists. So they think that uh, rightness is just identical to maximizing net utility and wrongness just is identical to failing maximi- to maximize net utility. But the big problem that they face is this is-ought problem, which is I could easily say this, uh, and it seems totally correct. I see that that maximizes net utility, but is it right? Uh, I see that that fails to maximize net utility, but is it wrong? That's the open question argument, which is kind of a version of the is-ought gap. Uh, and so they have to explain like why that makes sense. And they have some things to say. I don't want to go into them now, but that's sort of a, an initial problem for naturalism.
0: And and your general response to Brandon's question is the Izzot problem would be a, a problem for the natural moral realist, but yep. it's not a problem for the non-natural moral realist. Yep. That's right. I
1: papered over the naturalism, non-naturalism distinction because naturalists accept all that stuff that I said. They accept stance independence. They accept uh, cognivism. They accept non-nihilism. Uh, but then I didn't you know distinguish further the moral realists. Uh, but I was basically defending a, a non-naturalist version because um, Cuneo, Enoch, who else do I consider? Those two are are definitely non-naturalists, and most other uh, realists are non-naturalists. It used to be most were naturalists, but then for various reasons, they moved to non-naturalists.
0: Okay, let's go to another question here. So Justin Mooney asked, I see how Enoch's argument puts pressure on the view that normative facts are subjective. Does it also put pressure on the view that normative facts are intersubjective?
1: Yeah, I think it. I think it does. So, what would it be for normative facts to be intersubjective? I think that would uh, normative facts would be intersubjective if they depend on what we all think about something, or if we all agree on something. Maybe uh, something is a normative fact if we all uh, agree, or we all have similar attitudes about uh, some course of behavior or something like that. Is that so? I'm going to assume that's what Justin means. I'm sorry to Justin if I if I get your uh, question wrong, but here I think that it does show even that moral facts aren't going to or normative facts aren't going to be intersubjective because um, for the most part, when you're trying to figure out what's uh, what you ought to do, um, you're not interested in what everybody else thinks or what everybody else's attitude are. At least when it comes to what makes it the case that you ought to do this or that. Um, you don't think that it, those those attitudes ground the facts about what you ought to do. Instead, when you're deliberating, you think it has something to do with, you know, how mu- how pleasurable it'll be or how much it'll contribute to your virtue or states independent of other people's attitudes. So I think that uh, if he's right about the uh, normative truths being ne- needed, needing to be posited when we deliberate, it's not going to depend on intersubjective truths.
0: All right, it looks like Hey, Justin confirmed. That's what, uh, that's what he means. I am going to do, it looks like I have two more questions. So let me do this one and then one more. Uh, legend plays ask, what's your view on consequentialism? So you might want to say what consequentialism is and then what your view is. So consequentialism is the
1: view that what you morally ought to do is, um, maximize net good consequences. So, um, in general, these are people who think that uh, it, what what you morally ought to do doesn't depend on your intentions or what people's rights are. It in, instead depends on what the consequences of your action are. And they typically think that um, if you fail to maximize good consequences, you're doing something morally wrong. I don't have really sophisticated views about why consequentialism is false, other than it just seems to me that there are lots of cases that run roughshod over uh, that, that show that consequentialism is in trouble. I mean, this is totally not sophisticated at all, but the standard, um, trolley problem where, uh, in the original trolley problem, a trolley's coming and it's headed for five people. You could turn it off and hit one. I think it's fine to hit one in that case, but I, there's another trolley problem where, uh, actually maybe a better case is the, uh, organ transplant problem. So suppose you're a doctor, you have five people in the back, uh, who all have organ failure, guy comes in and needs a a routine checkup. And as you're doing the routine checkup, you realize, oh man, if I kill this guy and take his organs, I can distribute them to those five in the back because he's a perfect match. And I could, so I could kill this guy and save five lives in the back. Consequentialism says you should do that. Um, At least if you specify the case precisely enough, consequentialism says you should do that. And I think you shouldn't do that. And I don't have anything sophisticated to say other than just like, you definitely shouldn't kill one innocent person to save five or one innocent person to save two. Um, there are some more sophisticated worries I have about um, whether what you morally ought to do is what you expect will do the most good or whether what you reasonably expect or what will in fact do uh, the most good. And if you take each of those options, you're going to run into problems along the way. But that's, you know, that's pretty complicated. But I also have worries about that. But at the end of the day, my worries about it are totally unsophisticated. Just seems like it gets uh, intuitive cases wrong.
0: A few more questions came in. How much more time do you want? I
1: got all day. Yeah. I mean, <laughs>
0: okay. Okay. So, um, what's the takeaway? Sid asks Is there any good reason to adopt the moral framework of moral subjectivists?
1: It's uh, so a moral subjectivist is somebody who thinks that in some way or other morality depends on us. Um, there is, I think, the most plausible version of that is uh, Kantianism. I, I think of it as a kind of subjectivism, even though they tend to think of themselves as like, you know, very hardcore, um, maybe not realist, but they think that the truths are objective in some sense. Um, but besides the Kantians, uh, it's, I don't see much attractive about the other views, according to which morality depends on us in some way or other. Um, certainly not uh, the various kinds of relativism. Um, yeah, no, <laughs> that's the short answer. No.
0: I, I, Maybe you'll have a uh, the numbers off on off the top of your head here. I'm just curious, so among metaethicists, how is the breakdown like what what number of them are moral realists do you do you have any idea
1: yeah uh let me let me I'll take a guess here. I mean, look, I'm shooting from the hip here, but my guess is there's probably ten or fifteen percent are expressivists that is non cognitivists um I bet you know, um most people are going to be realists. So I'd say maybe 50% are realists and maybe 30% of those are non-naturalist realists and maybe 20 are naturalists. Uh, lots of other people, there's going to be some nihilists. I, my guess is like 5%. I think a lot of people who are nihilists just don't even get into ethics in the first place because it's just not for the same reason that you know a lot of atheists don't get into philosophy of religion. Um, and then there's going to be versions of Kantians or relativists or other kinds of people who fill out the rest of the... Thing. I mean, it's a pretty wide swath of people in different in different camps. It's not as though one dominates, but I think non naturalism of all the of all of the the camps uh, is probably the biggest. And that actually wasn't true even twenty years ago. Um, Alan Gibbard wrote a book called um, Wise Choice at Feelings, and like what he says at the beginning of that paper of that book in two thousand three is basically like moral realism is dead. It's never coming back. It was a useless idea, and you know now here it is. So, uh,
0: all right, so Tim asks tim is one of my patrons i really appreciate that tim he says uh question to to the ontological reasoning so that that modal ontological argument how can we claim that that second premise some putative truths are necessarily true in some possible worlds if we don't have access to those possible worlds um
1: So several ways, I suppose. One one way to have access to what what happens in other possible worlds is by means of imagination. So we can just imagine. Imagination isn't a perfect guide to modality, that is what's possible and necessary, but it's a decent guide to what's necessary and possible. Um, So we can just imagine that uh, there are such truths. And furthermore, we can sort of imagine what would it take for those truths to fail to exist? I mean, suppose that That, uh, I mean, suppose we wanted to make it the case that there are no moral truths in a world. How would we arrange things in that world to make it the case that there are no moral truths? Um, if, if non-naturalist realism is true, well, messing around with the material world isn't going to stop moral truths from existing because they're not material things. So, uh, as you begin to think about like, how could we stop moral truths from existing? You begin to see it would be kind of hard. Um, so that suggests that then it's probably at least possible that there are some moral truths. And so you don't need to know you don't need to know all every possible world what's happening at every part of every possible world. You don't need to know that. You just need to know some some things about uh, possible worlds, and you can do that by means of imagination. I think.
0: All right, this one may be complex because I don't know. I, I've heard this term and I still don't fully understand it. So, what are some reasons to reject non-cognitivism? And then I think I'm saying this right, the Freud-Geach problem? The Frege-Geach problem. Frege-Geach, okay. Yeah, yeah. So what
1: are some reasons to uh, reject non-cognitive? I'll tell you why I reject it. Um, when I think about what I'm doing when I issue a moral judgment, when I think about when I say that something is wrong or good or bad or something like that, I sort of just think about what am I doing? Uh, am I expressing a mere adi- – am I expressing a non-cognitive attitude or am I expressing a belief? It seems to me that like – Uh, I'm trying to express a belief. The non cognitivists say, even though, try as you might, if you try to express a moral belief, you're going to fail. You can't possibly do it. And I just think, I try really hard. I think I could do it. But I mean, there's more sophisticated uh, reasons. So uh, one of the motivations for being a non cognitivist is, as I said, uh, a lot of people think every time someone makes a moral judgment, they're to some degree motivated to act in accord with it um and a lot of people think that could only be explained if when you issue a moral judgment you're issuing a motivational state why is it that every time you issue a moral judgment you're motivated to act because a moral judgment just is a motivating state and there i want to say that's not a compelling argument for the following reason it may well be that most of us want to act morally we have that desire already in us but so when we believe that something is the morally right thing to do we're thereby motivated to do it because we have a pre-existing desire to do what's morally good. That would explain why in almost all cases, it's, we're motivated to act in accordance with morality. So I just don't even like get on the train at the beginning. Like I don't see the motivation for it. The Frege-Geach problem is a, an important problem for non-cognitivism. That's a problem that basically says, hey, um, if if... Our moral judgments are non-cognitive states. Why do they behave so much like uh, descriptive claims or like cognitive states? Why is it that we can do things like this? If it's wrong to uh, punch your brother, then it's wrong to pay someone to punch your brother. Um, it's wrong to punch your brother. Therefore, it's wrong to pay your, your someone to punch your brother. That was just an inference that I just used, uh, which relies on truth values. So it, it employed modus ponens, which is a mode of reasoning that depends on the claims it's using being true or false. So if I could do that, it looks like the claims can be true or false, which means that they must be uh, at least possible states of minds, or sorry, states of cognitive states of mind. So then the the question for the expressivist is, okay, well, why are we able to make inferences with our moral beliefs if they're just non-cognitive states? You can't make inferences with non-cognitive states. That's the problem, and they have to try to fix it. I don't get into the details of the Frege-Geach problem, mostly because... I'm not that compelled by noncognitivism, So I'm not interested in like getting into the details, but it is a, it is a compelling problem and it's one that they face, you know, all the time and they gotta, they gotta say something about
0: it. Okay. Uh, Brandon one, one six says, do you believe that moral properties are supervenient on non-moral properties?
1: Yes. I do. Um, I do. Basically what that commits me to is that every time um, a moral property is instantiated, um, in accordance with some descriptive properties, then anytime those those same descriptive properties are instantiated somewhere else, then you're also going to get that moral property. So anytime you have an unjustified killing, that's going to be wrong. Anytime an unjustified killing shows up in the world or any world, more wrongness is going to be there as well. That's what I'm committed to. That's the supervenience claim.
0: And yeah, I do think that's right for all moral properties. All right. That is the end of our questions. So... I really appreciate you taking an hour and a half of your time, Dr. Sampson, to not only do the interview, and then you you prepared all the stuff in that document. So thank you so much.
1: Yep. My pleasure.
0: That concludes my interview with Dr. Sampson. I really hope you enjoyed it. If so, please consider leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. Also, make sure you listen in next week because we're going to be moving to what I consider stage two of a moral argument for the existence of God, and and that's considering how it is that God might ground uh, moral facts, moral knowledge, and so on. So uh, I'll be joined by Dr. Ann Jeffrey for that episode. If you value the work that I'm doing, please consider becoming one of my patrons. By becoming a patron, you're actually helping me to be able to devote more of my time to creating content like this. The link to become a patron is in the notes on this podcast. And I want to say thank you to all 39 of my current patrons. I just couldn't do the work that I'm doing without your support. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan of philosophy of religion, and most channels out there are really just retreading
1: the same old content over and over again, and the same old arguments between folks, and I feel like I just lost interest in it, until I started watching The Analytic Christian. On this channel, they really have cutting-edge philosophers discussing topics that I never even would have considered, but when you get into them, are really, really fascinating fascinating issues, fascinating developments. I feel like I'm learning something new every time, even as someone who's been a fan of philosophy of religion and interested in it for years.
0: I feel like I'm always learning something new and deepening my understanding. That's why I like the Analytic Christian.